All right. Uh, turn to Isaiah 49. I'm going to read the end of 48. Last week, we did a bunch of chapters. That we did a larger chunk than we usually do, um, starting in 44 and going through 48. And, and the issue there was, and that's a, that's a, uh, uh, a section that, that lies in between the first and second servant songs. So if you remember, 40 and 41 introduced the big picture. What's God going to do? He's going to restore his people we know we can trust him because his word is, oh, you know, the grass withers, the flower fades, the word stands forever. But, but um, then 42 introduces this servant, um, and, and that's the first of four servant songs, which are in 42, 49, 50, and 52 and 53. So, so we're entering now the, the, the section of the servant songs, but between those two the first one and the second one, the 42 one and the 49 one, which we're going to look at today, there's this long section on what's actually happening in Judah historically. And, and the way that I tried to um, frame it last week was this, that if you want to ask at a 40,000 foot level, what's the Lord doing? Well, the Lord's redeeming his people and he's sovereign over all of world history. If you want to go down a little bit lower or, or, or zoom in a little bit tighter, what you could say is he's redeeming his people through his servant, through this messianic servant. And then if you want to get, get the, the, the uh, lens a little tighter or come down a little lower, what you're going to see is he's redeeming through his servant. And in the, the medium term, he's going to do it through Cyrus, who, who will ultimately be the instrument that God uses to take the people out of Babylon, which is where they're headed. They're not there yet. In Judah, historically, as Isaiah is preaching these things, they're not there, but they know they will be. We learned that all the way back in the time of Hezekiah, and that's been confirmed. And so 48 ends this way, after introducing the whole Cyrus business and how the Lord's going to return his people and restore them, not just physically, although physically first, but then spiritually, that's the main thing, because those things are always going together. Um, what he says at the end of 48 that kind of prefigures all of this is go out from Babylon, free, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy, proclaim it, send it out to the end of the earth, say the Lord has redeemed his servant Jacob. They did not thirst when he led them through the deserts. He made water flow for them from the rock. That's all from Numbers. It's a second exodus. Um, he split the rock and water gushed out. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. So what God is going to do we now know from Isaiah's sermons by the end of 48 is God is going to bring his people on a journey, a kind of second exodus, not from Egypt this time, but from Babylon. There's going to be a physical component to it. The more important component is the spiritual component when he says he's going to pour out his spirit on his people. Uh, but both are part of the package deal of the second exodus. And he's going to do that through Cyrus, at least the physical part through Cyrus, and then ultimately, though, we're looking for this servant. So now we're entering the second servant song. But questions about that? That was a that was a really quick review of, of a lot of kind of complex back and forth in this section of Isaiah. But any questions or comments or or, or need for clarification or anything before we move on to forty nine? Okay. So in 49, now we're in our second servant song. And remember, these servant songs have a, have a pattern to them. The pattern gets um, modified slightly in the last one, which is really the most important one and the most famous one. But the pattern basically is this. 
that there's a, there's a declaration of who the servant is and what he's going to do. And then there's a kind of commentary on that. What this means for Israel, what it means for God's people, how, how, what effect this is all going to have. So it begins with a declaration and then there's a commentary. So, so the declaration or the description here is in verses 1 through 6. And then the commentary is in verses 7 through 13. Now, before we dive into this, I want to just remind you of a couple key terms that you kind of have to keep an eye on because they, they, they can shift. And, and Isaiah uses them sometimes in different ways. One is this term servant, which is so important, but at, we've already seen Isaiah sometimes use this as a collective and then sometimes use it as an individual Similarly, in fact, very similarly, is this term Israel, which he does not always use in the same way. Sometimes he uses it for the people that he's speaking to right then, uh, because they were Israelites, and he speak, he's preaching to people in Jerusalem, in the area of Jerusalem. Um, but sometimes he, he talks about Israel in singular terms, and even talks about Israel as his servant. So you have to kind of keep an eye on those two terms um, in this section as well. We've already seen him toggle back and forth in his usage, and he's going to do that here in the, in the uh, declaration or the description and the commentary. So pay attention to that. The other thing I would say to pay attention to as, as we read through this, and, I wanna, and I'm going to actually point out some things about it, are there, there are going to be in this, in this section, I think, one or two verses that might ring a bell in your mind, and you may... It's, it's going to sound maybe kind of familiar, and and you won't you know you might not be able to place where why it's familiar. But the reason it's familiar is because there are one or two places in this song, and then the next song there are one or two, and then in the third and the fourth song there are a ton. But but there are one or two uh, little phrases and, and verses here that are picked up on in the New Testament in really significant ways. So we'll 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 keep an eye out for those as well. All right, forty nine. 1 through 6. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you people from afar. Now, I hope that rings a bell, maybe not from the New Testament, but from earlier in Isaiah. Because back in Isaiah 42, remember after that whole description of who God is and what he's going to do in 40 and 41, 42 begins, hear, O coastlands. And, and, and if you remember, 42 is about the coastlands receiving judgment. And so we, we talked about how that's a universal judgment. And, and, and Isaiah's message is for his people in his time, in his place. But it's actually a universal message. And, and that comes out in the, in the, in the um, actual language that he uses. And here we have it again. Listen to me, O coastlands. Give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away and he said, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing in vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations, 
that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Now let's, let's pull that apart a little bit. And I want to do this in a few specific ways. First, did you notice at least two different ways that he uses the term Israel here? Um, did you notice how, how Israel is used? I, I told you to kind of pay attention to this word because it, it's, it's uh, Isaiah, Isaiah has a habit in this section of using it I don't want to say inconsistently because I think there's a there's a rationale behind it, but but it's not always referring to the same entity. So so point point out for me at least two ways that he's using Israel. He used it in verse three when he says, "You are my servant, Israel." Yep, and then so that's is so we'll call this for now. I mean, I think we can get more specific than this, but just for, for kind of guide our, guide our steps here, we'll call this Israel 1 um, is in verse 3. And then, and then how is Israel used again later on in the description? Verse 5 in the plural. Yeah, exactly. So then we have verse 5 where Israel is the one that Israel 1 brings back. Right? So, now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, and that's the same one who's speaking in verse 3, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord. And then verse 6, same thing. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? So, again, I mean, we can we can be more specific than this, but in this, in this song, you've got Israel 1, who's the servant of the Lord, called from the womb. And what's he doing? Well, what he's doing is he's bringing back and regathering the people of Israel. Uh, verse 5, uh, to, to bring Jacob back to him, that Israel might be gathered to him. Verse 6, to raise up the chi- tribes of Jacob, bring back the preserved of Israel. So this servant who's called Israel is also the one bringing back Israel. And that that might, I mean, Isaiah doesn't unpack the significance of all of this in his book, but but it does uh, help provide a key, I think, for when we come to the New Testament and we see how the New Testament presents the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus. Because in the Gospels, for instance, there, there are a whole host of things that Jesus himself does that is, in a sense, um, he, he is, he's succeeding where Israel failed. Um, so, for instance, when right at the beginning of the Gospels, they record Jesus being led in the wilderness and, and being tempted by the devil, and, and he comes out of it Victorious. Whereas if you were to go back to Numbers, you'd see the opposite um, thing happen with respect to Israel. Um, Jesus understands the law and keeps the law perfectly. Whereas Israel, the, in, in the case of Israel, the law simply brings death. Um, Jesus is a light to the nations. Israel in Deuteronomy is said to be, is, is told, commanded to be a light to the nations. But Israel fails in that duty, and is not a light to the nations. So, on and on, I mean, you, you could draw all kinds of parallels 
But, but the point is, you, you sort of understand then, and you start to read things and see things in the New Testament that, that you might not have picked up on. Because what the New Testament is doing, I think in part, not entirely, but in part, is presenting Jesus as, well, I mean, Paul calls him the second Adam, the last Adam, second Adam, and the last Adam. But also, um, but also he, is, he is recapitulating successfully what Israel failed to do. So Israel is called God's son and God's servant, but it's really kind of a failure. Jesus is called God's son. He is God's son in, in, in a divine sense as well, but, but he's called God's son and, and he is God's servant and he is regathering Israel by succeeding where Israel failed. Is the idea. So, so Isaiah, again, doesn't unpack all of that. And I'm not trying to read that into Isaiah 49. Except to say that what Isaiah 49 does is gives us kind of the, the building blocks or the vocabulary, the theological uh, vocabulary to make sense of what we see then happening in the New Testament. And if we miss that, what, what's going to happen is we'll just, we'll just miss one of this very significant messages that the New Testament writers are trying to show us and that Jesus Jesus displays. So those are those are the ways Israel's used. Now let's look at um let's look at what the purpose of this Israel number one, the servant, is. Well, the purpose is he is Israel in whom I will be glorified. Um, and and interestingly enough, interestingly enough, in verse four, and this is this is a profound verse, I think. In verse four, we have this, we have this um, peculiar image of the servant um, experiencing. And, and, and again, Isaiah doesn't give us this language. The New Testament gives us this language. But I would say, based on pulling both of those together, the servant in his humanity. Um, under seeing seeing things um uh see, seeing his his even his death drawing near look at what he says in verse 4 i've labored in vain i've spent my strength for nothing in vanity you, you know you know that jesus uh, on the cross is is uh meditating on psalm 22 um he 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 quotes most famously from the first verse of psalm 22 when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, now, if you read through Psalm 22, just like if you read through Isaiah 49, you know that's, that's not actually the end of the story. Because in Psalm 22, he says, yet you haven't forsaken me. But, but nonetheless, there is that, that cry at the beginning. And here, there's something similar to that. Uh, I said, I've labored in vain, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with uh, my God. And what the Lord then says is, what I'm using you to do is to gather what he calls the protected, uh, uh, preserved, sorry, the preserved ones of Israel, verse 6, back from the coastlands. So this is the other interesting thing that happens with this term Israel. Number one, it's used of the servant and of the nation. But number two, it's... Um, it's used to describe people who are coming from the coastlands. So, in other words, it, it's, on the one hand, he says, my servant is gathering people from all the nations. And then he says, or in other words, 
My servant is gathering all the preserved ones of Israel to himself. And, and this, is, this is the great mission in this second servant song. Now, a couple other things I want to note about this. I mentioned to you that there might be some verses that sort of ring a bell um, in your mind because they're picked up on in the New Testament. Were there any that, that um, struck you in that way? That, that did sort of seem to, uh, seem to evoke New Testament terms? I don't think this is what you're looking for, but I, the calling from my mother's womb remind me of actually Paul, who's like echoes that language, like like Jeremiah. And right, like right, right, right. No, no. I mean, I think that's that's a good point. I mean, it's not directly quoted, but I think that that whole that whole kind of pattern that we get, where where you're right, Jeremiah is the clearest, and then Jesus, obviously. I mean, even though even though this isn't quoted in the Gospels with respect to Mary and the virgin birth, but but there is, a, you know, there aren't too many times that wombs are mentioned in the Bible, and that's one of them, and so there is something significant there, and then, and then you're right, I mean, Paul sort of sees that kind of thing playing out as well. So I think you're right, thematically, that's, that's a, that, that, that should set off um, alarms in our mind in a good way. And, any, any others? In verse 6, the, the line, I will make you as a light for the nations, yeah. reminded me of John 1. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, yeah, that's exactly right. It's, it's, um, so John 1 picks up on that, that the light was the life of men, um, or sorry, the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness. And actually, this is directly quoted in Acts, uh, we can turn there really quickly, in Acts, um, uh, 13. And and this is very, this is this is kind of a striking application, because here um, Paul and Barnabas are are preaching to the Gentiles, and they quote from Isaiah, uh, and and they they use this exact quote from the Septuagint of Isaiah, but they use the exact quote and they 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 apply it to their own ministry. As a command, let me read this. Uh, I'll pick up in verse 46. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, a um, couple things that are really interesting about this. Again, look at verse 6 closely. What's, you know, verse 6 also talks about Israel. And yet, and yet what Paul um, draws out of this most significantly is that yes, um, the servant was going to bring the preserved ones of Israel, but actually, the real uh, for Paul, the real action is in the last part of the verse, 
I will make you as a light for the nations. And that word nations, by the way, is just the word for Gentiles. Um, so it could, it could have easily in the ESV been translated as Gentiles. I will make you as a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So if you asked Paul, if you said, Paul, how come in the Old Testament, uh, it seems like God is primarily focused on the, on the Jewish people, primarily focused on Israel in, a, in an ethnic and national sense. And now you're going out and preaching the gospel to Gentiles. You know, show me in my Bible, Paul, where, where you have the right to do this. And what Paul doesn't do is he doesn't say, well, it's not in the Bible, but Christ appeared to me on the road to Damascus and told me to do this. Although that's true, or the second part's true. But what Paul actually does consistently, and he does this in the book of Romans repeatedly, drawing from this section of Isaiah, but what Paul does when he's put on the spot in the midst of a sermon is he says, you know, what's happening here is this, that we're, we're fulfilling Isaiah 49. Because Isaiah 49 said the servant wasn't just a light to Israel, however, however you want to define that, but actually said explicitly that he is a light to the Gentiles. And so what you see playing out in my ministry as I proclaim Christ, as I proclaim that servant, what you see when Gentiles respond is simply what Isaiah told you was going to happen as part of this, the outworking of this second exodus. And the Gentiles hear that, and it's very good news to them. Because maybe they were thinking in those um, more narrow ways as well. But this is all drawn from the, this servant song. The other interesting thing about how Paul does this and we've talked about this before, and particularly in Isaiah 42, is that the servant is, um, is, is a singular figure, of course, uh, a messianic figure. But, but what's interesting is that in Isaiah 42, what it says is, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially it's not just that the servant is saved, it, it's, it's those who are connected with him that they, they can also ben, they also receive the benefits of the servant's work of salvation so we talked for a while a couple of weeks ago about this doctrine of union with Christ that the New Testament expounds upon in such great detail to, to, you know to, to the degree that you have to conclude that uh, union with Christ is the sort of central feature of salvation and all the other blessings of salvation flow out from it well well you can kind of see that if you read between the lines with how Paul reads uh, Isaiah 49. Because in Isaiah 49, who's the one who's the light to the nations? It's the Messiah, right? It's the servant. But in Acts 13, Paul says, God commanded us to do this. And you, and you go, well, how, how did you make that transfer well, I think Paul makes that transfer because, as you know, Paul um, uh, Paul said, and I quoted this a couple of weeks back. Uh, you know, I I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And and if you were to ask, well, how how did Paul get that? How did he understand that union with Christ theology? I think I think the simplest answer is to say, well, think about his conversion on the road to Damascus, because what are what is what does 
Jesus say to Saul at that time? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And and if and if Saul were going to be very, you know, flippant in his answer and very sort of dismissive, he could have said, Well, I'm not. I'm persecuting Christians. I'm persecuting the church. But but obviously he knows enough not to not to say that. But you see what 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 lies behind Jesus' words? What lies behind Jesus' words is you you what you're doing to them, you're doing to me. You persecute them, you're persecuting me. And so Paul understands how deeply rooted this is in the doctrine of salvation. And and he even, in a sense, uses that in his application and his understanding of Isaiah 49. There's another one. There's another text in here that's um, that's kind of interesting as well. It's used really two places um, significantly. One is in Hebrews 4 and the other is in Revelation 1. And the verse is verse 2 where the servant declares, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. That's just a strange, you know, image, isn't it? But of course, it gets picked up in the New Testament in a couple places. First is in the book of Hebrews, as I said, um, uh, Hebrews 4.12, you'll recognize this verse. But you might not think of it in, in terms of Isaiah 49. Here's what it says. Um, the, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then if you combine that very familiar text with Revelation 1 where we have the description of Jesus and um, in his resurrected glory, and it's in verse 16 of Revelation 1, what does it say about him? In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Now, what, what seems to be happening here is uh, both uh, the, the writer to Hebrews is... is picking up on the description of the, the Messiah who is has as a, his mouth, uh, what comes out of his mouth is like a sword, a two-edged sword, this is kind of a specific term, and he says that's the word of God. Um, and then in Revelation 1, it, it, it says that again, he, this in the description of the, of the son whom John sees in his vision, it says he had this sword coming out of his mouth. Actually, he picks up on that again at, at the end of Revelation when he comes in judgment. And so what the writer to Hebrews understands is that if that's a description of God's Son, if that's a description of the Messiah, then what we have is the Word of God operating in the same way. What comes out of his mouth is, is sharper than any two-edged sword and able to pierce to the very thoughts and intentions of the heart. So, what what's the writer to Hebrews doing? The writer to Hebrews is, is doing something slightly different than what Paul does in Acts 13. Paul in Acts 13 understands what the servant's doing and sees his own ministry as an extension of that. What the 
writer of Hebrews is doing is he understands the description of the power of what comes out of the mouth of God, and he says that that's what the Word of God is. The Word of God is, is that. It's that sharp sword coming out from the mouth of God's Messiah, which is, you know, again, Paul, Paul uses this language too when he talks about the Bible as being the Word of Christ. So, that's the description. Those are the description, the kind of key descriptors to look at. Now let's look at the commentary of this um, servant song. The commentary begins in verse 7 and it goes through verse 13. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. Um, I'm going to get back to that. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people. We've seen that before in Isaiah 42. Remember, um, I talked about how we normally think of you know, party A and party B, and the covenant is kind of what holds them together, and the covenant's not the person, uh, the covenant's kind of between the, the people or the parties. But again, here, uh, we have Isaiah using the language of a coming covenant and personifying it, and saying, you are the covenant, uh, speaking to the Messiah. To establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come out, those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from north and from west and these from the land of Syene. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. Now, again, a couple of verses or phrases that might have rung a bell. I pointed out one because I couldn't, I couldn't keep myself from stopping uh, when, it, when, he, when he refers to the servant as the covenant. It's highly significant. I think I told you um, a couple of weeks ago that we have in the earliest, among the earliest fathers of the church, they'll say things like, Jesus Christ is the new covenant. And kind of, that's a category error, it sounds like. But, but it's not. In Isaiah, it's not a category error. Um, but, but look at this in verse 8. This is what I really want to point out to you. Um, in verse 8, thus says the Lord, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Um, and and if you turn to uh, 2 Corinthians 6, look at how Paul applies this to his own ministry. And and it's funny because you probably have read 2 Corinthians 6 and you might not, maybe, maybe you've picked up on this, maybe you haven't. I mean, it just sounds like exalted, beautiful, poetic language that fits with the context of what Paul's saying. Um, but, but then you realize, oh, Paul's actually doing more than just using really 
you know, exalted poetic language to drive his point home, he's actually saying something about an Old Testament promise. I'm going to pick up in verse 20 of chapter 5 and then just go through the chapter break in chapter 6 into uh, verse 2. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. We're ambassadors for the Messiah. We're, we're use Isaiah language. We're, we're ambassadors for the, the, the servant of the Lord. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of the Messiah, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that, I hope, is a familiar verse to you. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because, he says, in a favorable time I listened to you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. Again, quote from exactly what we just read. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And so then what does Paul go out? How does Paul apply it to himself? This is really interesting because the way Paul applies it then to himself is he says, so then what I resolve to do as an ambassador of this Messiah is to make sure that no one has an obstacle in his path to realizing this. And he even goes on to say, we commend, verse, verse 4, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, peace, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, etc., 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 as unknown and yet well-known, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. And see, it's this, it's this really interesting um, per, window into Paul's view of exactly what's happening. On the one hand, Paul says, what's happening is nothing less than what Isaiah said in Isaiah 49. What's happening when, when we see people coming to Christ, when we see them drawn to him in faith and their lives are transformed, when we see that, that's nothing less than the, the, the continuation of this second exodus that God promised through his servant in Isaiah 49. But and now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. But on the other hand, what's, what's kind of surprising maybe, a little bit shocking, if you wouldn't have known this from Isaiah 49, I don't think, but Paul knows it to be true. The way that's happening is by us being willing to endure all kinds of hardship for the sake of the gospel. So that we, are, we have everything, and yet we basically have nothing in the eyes of the world. We are rich because it's the day of salvation, but we're poor. And, and that's, you know, that's okay, because we're ambassadors of Christ, and Christ is making his appeal through us. So the interesting, um, the interesting thing is, so some people will say, um, well, it, that, that if, if you think that Paul is, is seeing the fulfillment of Isaiah 49 here, then that's a kind of over-realized eschatology, that it's, it's you're bringing future promises into the present. But see, Paul doesn't think of it that way because Paul says these things are happening now, but not exactly in the way you might think because Paul, Paul's not saying 
It's the day of salvation, and therefore my life is great, and I don't suffer anymore, and I have wealth, and I have acclaim, and people love me, and that's what it looks like to be in the day of salvation. No, he says, now's the day of salvation, and what that looks like is people don't know me, and they don't care about me, and I, and I live in poverty, and I endure all kinds of hardships for the sake of Christ. So, so it's, it's eschatology for sure, but not, not in a kind of health and wealth way, because Paul says, this is, this is great. Don't you see what's happening? You, don't, you may not notice this, but when you walk into church and you see people coming to faith and you see people being raised up in the faith and you see people coming to a greater understanding of the Bible and, 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 and realizing the benefits of their union with Christ, and you see all that happening... That's like, that's, that's what Isaiah prophesied is playing out in front of your eyes. And, and, if you, and if you're rejecting Christ, you have to realize that this is the time. This is the moment. This is the day of salvation right now. And so you don't miss it. But, but on the other hand, that means I'm enduring all things for the sake of it. Because actually what it means for the minister of the gospel the ambassador of Christ is, is suffering and hardship and difficulty. And that's, you know, that's, that's okay. Paul says, that's fine. I, I rejoice in that because I know what's happening here. So that's the, that's the, that's the biggie. And you, and you, you read through verses um, nine through 13 and there aren't specific um, uh, quotations here that are picked up on the old Testament, but just be aware that some of the kinds of things that are described here uh, are at least echoed in things that Jesus himself does in his earthly ministry. It's why when John the Baptist says, he sends messengers, because John's in prison at this time, and he sends some of his disciples, and they say to Jesus, are you, are you really the Messiah? Or are we waiting for someone else? And John, you know, who knows what was going through John's mind at that time. But, but Jesus says, tell John this. And then he quotes from this section of Isaiah, not 49, but he quotes from these servant songs, that the blind are, have, are receiving sight, and, and prisoners are being freed. And, and that's supposed to kind of trigger John to say, oh, okay, I get it. This is, this is it. This is, this is the beginning of that second exodus in, in a spiritual sense. Okay. Now, um, I had planned to do the next two servant songs. That's obviously not happening but let me read the end of 49 because I want you to see something else. I should have almost included this in the pattern because it really is part of the pattern. I said that there's a kind of introduction of the servant and then a commentary on the implications and that's the standard formula. There's actually like another part to that which is you have your um, description and then your, your commentary but then... Almost invariably, what you have actually after that is, is worship or praise. Because it's natural, right? If all this is actually true, then rejoice in the Lord. And here's what it says. But from Zion, but Zion said, the Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. Uh, because this is how they're feeling in exile. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? 
Even these you may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Um, And then look at verse 18. Lift up your eyes around and see. They all gather. They come to you. As I live, declares the Lord, you shall put them all on as an ornament. You shall bind them on as a bride does. And then then the, the Lord says in verse 22, thus says the Lord, behold, I will lift up my hands to the nations, raise my signals to the peoples. They shall bring your sons in their arms and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Kings shall be your foster fathers, queens, your nursing mothers with faces to the ground. They shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then I will, you, you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And then look at how he ends this with this kind of great crescendo effect. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So this great sort of hymn of praise to the Lord um, is what the passage ends with. Now, what we'll plan to do next week, because we're out of time, is pick up in chapter 50, which is our third of four servant songs and um and then uh we'll spend a week or two maybe on um 52 and 53 which is the fourth servant song the most important one but it's actually really timely because none of this was planned out in any really careful way but it, it is i think appropriate that here we are, we're coming into this season where we think about the Incarnation and sing about the Incarnation and hear sermons about the Incarnation. And, and that's where Isaiah is in his thoughts right now. That's, he's talking about the servant and the birth of, of Israel's Messiah. So let's pray and then we'll end for today. Lord, we are grateful once again for your word. What riches it holds for us. We pray that we would hold on to it, that we would hold it closely to us that you would speak to us through it we know it's sharper than a two-edged sword and father we thank you for the promises of your son and for the fulfillment of those promises in christ and we pray that we would worship him as he deserves to be worshiped particularly in the hour to come we thank you that he not only uh, is our savior but invites us to his table and is present with us by his spirit as we come to it and so as we prepare for that Please make us grateful, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.